turn to John chapter 14. Mentioned this morning that we'll be finishing up the 14th chapter, and uh, <clears throat> then we come to the wonderful 15th chapter, of course, and uh, that'll be a blessing, I trust, as well. But uh, let's uh, finish up uh, chapter 14 here. And tonight we want to talk about real peace, real peace. Uh, <clears throat> we come to the final verses of chapter 14. It is though the Lord Jesus is kind of wrapping up his instruction, his encouraging and yet warning conversation uh, with the disciples. In verse 25, uh, you notice there it says, These things, these things, speaking of the things he has just told them in light of his soon departure from them, uh, he reminds them of his promise of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, or the Paraclete, as uh, the he, uh, Greek word uh, is, Paraclete, the one who comes alongside them when he was uh, will be gone. And uh, his time to go to the cross is now very, very near. And so he speaks about them about having peace. Uh, they were going to uh, be without the Lord Jesus, and so he kind of ends his uh, conversation in his conclusion. He ends like he begins in verse 1. You notice it there. Um, Let not your heart be troubled. It says that in verse uh, 1. And then uh, later on, he'll, he'll say in, uh, in the closing there, he'll say, let not your heart be troubled in verse 27. Be not, uh, neither let it be afraid. And so he's kind of ending up like he started. His desire for his disciples uh, and for us is to have real peace. Now the question is, do you know real peace? What real peace is? Uh, do we genuinely desire to have peace? Do we genuinely, gen, genuinely desire to have peace in our world, uh, in our families, in our community, and in our church? You know, there are many calls for peace in our world. Efforts are made in the troubled cities of our world uh, to somehow manufacture this elusive commodity of peace. And thus far, the efforts of humanity really have failed at the work of peace. Everything that mankind has done toward peace has a termination point. Perhaps part of the reason that we don't even understand uh, is because we don't uh, are is that we don't un even understand what peace is all about. You see, if you ask someone over at the United Nations uh, to define peace, they would probably say something like, well, the absence of hostilities. Uh, that's their definition. And certainly that is a peace in a sense. But there are plenty of places around the world that don't have a war going on, but they lack peace completely. Uh, for many, many years, there was no peace between our nation and the former Soviet Union, uh, though we're not involved in hostilities toward one another. Uh, that may or may not change in the near future. I don't know the way things are going. But, uh, of course, much of this has to do with the current situation in the Middle East. Do they really have peace? You know, when you're sitting on a powder keg and someone is playing with matches right by it, uh, that kind of makes things a little unsettled, doesn't it? 
Uh, a piece of paper might be an agreement of peace, but when a country uh, or countries use chemical weapons on their own citizens, when there's a threat of the use of nuclear weapons and a great deal of hatred and animosity, especially toward Israel, there's no peace. Now, peace is, incidentally, a Hebrew word, shalom. Uh, That was a common greeting among the Jewish people, as it is still today. Uh, If you go back there and read the recent letter from the Armsteads, it begins, shalom. And uh, it expresses the wish for wholeness and soundness and completeness and well-being. And we find it... uh, the word peace used, uh, a greeting used, but uh, in all but two New Testament epistles in the sense of a formal greeting or a blessing. The only two uh, epistles that don't have that greeting is uh, James and First John. The New Testament kind of adds a new dimension to this whole idea of peace. And the Hebrew Old Testament idea conveys a condition of freedom from strife, whether internal or external. The New Testament refers to peace as a benefit of the gospel of Christ. So what is peace? Well, uh, someone put it this way, and I think these are good uh, ways to express it. It is the wholeness and union in our relationship to God with whom we have been at enmity. Uh, It is the profound awareness of God's faithfulness and providence that sustains us in the midst of conflict, war, persecution, and tribulation. It is the calmness of spirit and mind when confronted with danger and opposition. It is the consciousness of God's forgiveness in light of our sin. It is the consolation of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the face of life's demands. Uh, It is the assurance of heaven while staring death in the face. It's a knowledge that God is faithful to his promises and he hears our earnest pleas. Uh, It is the abiding assurance that we are born again and that we stand in righteousness of Christ. It is the understanding that there is no more night in our soul. It is the joy of knowing that we are adopted into God's family and we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Well, that's peace. We could say amen and go home. But we haven't looked at our text this evening, so we'll uh, spend a little more time here. You know, when the Old Testament prophets foretold the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, they spoke of him as being the author of peace and having a kingdom of peace. Isaiah calls Christ the prince of peace in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. Micah writes, and this man shall be the peace in Micah 5, 5. See, both Isaiah and Micah describe the vivid, with vivid images, the kingdom of, uh, or the rule, the reign of peace through the Messiah. We could look at a number of other uh, passages in those two Old Testament prophets. But then when the angels announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds in the, on the hillside, they spoke these familiar words, which we have quoted no doubt often. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And then you think about the aged 
Simeon, who saw the eight-day-old Christ in the temple when Joseph and Mary brought the child for his circumcision and dedication, and Simeon cried out, Lord, now let us thou, thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen the sal- thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 through 6, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. See, all these scriptures point to the fact that there is only real peace, which is found in the relationship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, real peace, or we could call it even real unity, is certainly something we desire, but often if we examine it closely, we find that we fail miserably. Sometimes we have a fake peace or fake unity. And that's when someone says, Well, just can't we get just can't we get along? Can't we just get along? And someone else says, Sure. We can get along, but we'll have to agree to disagree. Now, you know what I think about that. I don't agree to disagree. I just disagree if if someone's wrong. But see, that's not real peace. To agree to disagree is not real peace. It's not real unity. Real peace surpasses all the efforts of mankind toward peace. It is this real peace that we proclaim in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kind of peace that has no termination point. It is eternal peace through faith in Christ. And at the culmination of this, his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ left his peace with his disciples. It was this peace which sustained the disciples through the perils of the early days of Christianity. And it is this same peace which will sustain us through all the demands and the fears and the pressures of this life. Now, how can we have the peace in this peace in Christ? Well, notice here from our text the roots, first of all, of peace. The roots of peace, something tangible has happened in order to have peace. This is true even in the political and international realm. For instance, uh, for the Middle East to really have peace, then all the sides involved are going to have to experience a real radical change in their attitude and their feelings that they have for one another and the prejudice that they have toward one another due to their ethnic differences. And they'll have to lay down their arms and they'll have to embrace one another in mutual respect. That would be a tangible peace. But for us to have peace in life, requires a solid foundation. You notice this peace as we see the roots of peace in our text here. We find here in these uh, last verses here of chapter 14, first of all, Jesus' uniqueness. 
Jesus' uniqueness. By uniqueness, I'm referring to the kind of peace which Jesus gives as being a unique peace. Uh, We see this here in verse 27. He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now you notice, the peace that Jesus was leaving with them was not as the world giveth. How has peace, this thing that the world tries to look for, how has it been acquired in our world? Well, you go back to the first and second century, you'll find what was known as Pax Romana, or the Roman peace. It's lasted almost 200 years as the Roman Empire enjoyed a so-called peace. And the essence of it was that the empire was so large and so powerful that they crushed anyone who attempted to threaten their tranquility. And their peace was not internal, it was external. And it was not a real peace, it was one of these things I would call fake peace. It wasn't real. Oh, it looks like on the outside, maybe there weren't any major wars, and Augustus and Octavian, they gloried in their peace, but it was a peace that had the, was at the price of Roman might and brutality. They would squash anybody that would try to make waves. Take a look at the so-called peace treaties the last couple of centuries, whether it be the Balfour Declaration of 1917, the Potsdam Treaty, or the Versailles Treaty, all of them came out of hostility and were maintained by might. Seems that most of the treaties between nations have been broken as well. But then you consider the peace movement. Some of you remember the 1960s. Some of you young folks don't remember that but because uh, you weren't around. But I remember the peace movement while I was going to school in the, uh, during my high school years and my college years was characterized by what? Rebellion, riots. We had a riot on our own college campus where I attended uh, college. Uh, there was a rise in crime. There was destruction of morals and decency. There was disintegration of the family. Was that really peace? No. What about the peace that Jesus gives? You know, it's totally different from that of the world. It's different in quality and character. It's different in duration. It's an eternal peace. It has no end. It's drastically different in effect since it's internal and capable of facing all opposition. It's pure without ulterior motives. It it's, is not maintained by might or brutality, but by power of the gospel. It's a peace which he himself won at the cross without any contribution or agreement on our part. It's a peace found in one person, yet experienced by multitudes of the redeemed. Jesus' uniqueness. Secondly, there's Jesus' direction. Peace is also rooted in Jesus' direction. And by this I refer to what our Lord kept emphasizing here throughout John 14 as he was comforting his disciples. He was going to return to the Father. Back in verses 2 and 3, you remember he talks about preparing a place 
for the redeemed. In verse four, he refers to the way where he was, uh, to the way where he was going. In verse 12, he states very plainly, I go unto my father. His reference in verse 18 is, uh, uh, to not leaving the disciples as orphans implies that he's going somewhere. In verse 23, he speaks of it. He speaks of he and the Father coming as in coming together to make their abode in the believer. And then the implication of verse 25, being yet present with you, is that time he is coming, uh, that is coming, that he will not be in their midst. He speaks of leaving his peace with the disciples there in verse 27. But now in verse 28, he says, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If I, if you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now the direction is obvious. Jesus is going, he's going away, he's going to his Father. He's going back to the Father by the way of the cross and resurrection. Now John's gospel, as we have seen a number of times, uses this reference to Jesus going, always pointing toward his redemptive work and his final accomplishment. Now why is that important for us to see? Well, I believe it's because Jesus has accomplished the redemptive work which the Father commanded him to do. He was obedient to his Father. And then we're still at enmity at God with God. And the very heart of this whole subject of peace comes into clear focus when we realize that in our lost condition, we are enemies of the living God. And our relationship with him is one of antagonism and hostility and rebellion and bitterness without the work of the cross. This enmity with God cannot be removed by just talking or some nice actions, some good works on our part. It's only when the judgment do this enmity is satisfied that we can be at peace with God and consequently live in peace. So the direction of Jesus had to be the cross in order to provide peace. So we see Jesus' uniqueness, his direction, but thirdly, we see his condition. There's a little phrase here in verse 30. If you jump down to verse 30, and I think it's easy to pass over, but it's very significant in our peace. In order for Jesus to mediate our peace with God, then he himself could never be at enmity with God. So the Lord says in verse 30, For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. This prince, of course, is Satan. And for this world, this world is his domain, this, the place of abode of his subjects, the realm of his wicked activity. Uh, we're not ready here. I'm not Skyping during my message. Come on, what's wrong with you? Kids. Do you love them? When Satan comes, he came to Christ, he found nothing to accuse him, nothing by which to taunt him, nothing to lay claim of the rulership over him. An old-time preacher describes this magnificently, and I pass it along to you. Our Lord 
would have his disciples know that Satan, the prince of this world, was about to make his last and most violent attack on him. He was mustering all his strength for one more tremendous onset. He was coming up with the utmost malice to try the second Adam in the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary. But our blessed master declares, he hath nothing in me. There is nothing he can lay hold on. There is no weak or defective point in me. I have kept my Father's commandment and finished the work he gave me to do. Satan, therefore, cannot overthrow me. He can lay nothing to my charge. He cannot condemn me. I shall come forth from the trial more than conqueror. Let us mark the difference between Christ and all others who have been born of woman. He is the only one in whom Satan has found nothing. He came to Adam and Eve and found weakness. He came to Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and all the saints, and he found imperfection. But he came to Christ, and he found nothing at all. He was a lamb without blemish and without spot, a suitable sacrifice for a world of sinners, a suitable head for a redeemed race. His perfect, sinless, blameless life kept the devil from being able to lay claim to him. The death of Christ was not as that of a sinner deserving death. It was one death that was a perfect, willingly offered, without spot or blemish on our behalf, a sacrifice so that the same sinners might have peace with the living God. And then notice Jesus' fulfillment there in verse 31. That the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. All that the Father commanded of Christ, he did. Never for a moment did our Lord give in to the world or follow the tempting voice of Satan. Never did he cross the line of holiness into unholiness. Never did he utter a word displeasing to the Father, nor have thought of dishonoring the Father, nor a deed offending the Father. Now just think about that for a moment and contrast that with our unrighteousness, our tendency to sin, our weaknesses when it comes to temptation and so forth. It's the same righteousness to all the law of God, which becomes the basis of our peace with God. Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf so that his righteousness might be imputed or applied to our account, and we might stand in the righteousness of Christ in God's sight. That is what brings peace. And so the root of peace. Now, notice secondly, the reason for peace. Now here again, our text is talking about going and coming in verse 28. Now those words offer us the reason to experience and live in the peace of Christ. It shows how practical and how useful Christian doctrine really is when we understand it. I can live in peace because of the reasons for peace provided in my salvation through Christ. 
First of all, Jesus goes. We've already seen that Jesus going implied the whole work of redemption. Now, uh, that in itself offers several truths that give us a reason for peace. The first one is, you are justified. Freely and fully through the work of Christ applied to your life by faith, you are justified, you are declared righteous in the sight of God. This is the righteousness of Christ applied to your account. Actively and the righteousness of Righteousness of Christ satisfying the demands of righteousness, even passively. You think of the passages of Scripture. Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Romans 8.33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Ephesians 2.13 and 14, But now in Christ Jesus ye ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. An old preacher, while speaking of the imputation of Christ's righteousness in the work of justification, I think put it well as, uh, as I give a quote from him, the peace and comfort of an awakening sinner can never stand firm and stable, but upon the basis of positive righteousness. When a sensible sinner casts his eye upon his own righteousness, holiness, fasting, prayer, tears, humblings, meltings, he can find no place for the sole of his foot to rest firmly upon by reason of the spots and the blots and the blemishes that cleaves both to his graces and his duties. He knows that his prayer need pardon, that his tears need washing in the blood of the Lamb, that his very righteousness needs another righteousness to secure him from condemnation. The saint of old have, uh, saints of old have always placed their happiness, their peace, and their comfort in their perfect and complete justification rather than in their imperfect and incomplete sanctification. You are justified. Secondly, you belong to a sovereign Lord. What comfort and peace there is in knowing that you belong to the sovereign Lord of the universe. Your peace is not grounded in some flighty deity that's here one day and gone the next. Or that changes with the fluctuations of the wind. Or different in every century and every culture. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Our Lord remains immutable, unchangeable, faithful in everything. He stands forever and ever. Now, does that not bring peace to your heart? How can we, how can I honestly fret and worry over life and be filled with fear about the things I face when I know that God is my sovereign? We must say with the Apostle Paul, if God be for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, then it does not matter who's against us. God plus no one is still the majority. We might shudder and shake over a lot of things because our view of God is really kind of small and weak, isn't it? But the exalted Lord is Lord indeed. Let's rest in peace 
in him. We also have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, in our context here, as as in the next couple of chapters, as we're going to see, this truth really is brought home. We have peace in knowing that we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was bringing comfort to the fearful hearts of his disciples as he told them of the coming of the Spirit because he was going. Yes, he was going, but the Spirit was coming to them. How often have you been strengthened and comforted in a troubling situation by knowing there's the quiet inner working of the Holy Spirit? Maybe it was in a hospital room waiting for surgery. Or perhaps it was in the darkness of the news of a, uh, of a loved one's sudden death. Or maybe it was traveling in some foreign land in which you had no one else to call upon for help. Or maybe it was a crisis situation involving a job or a family The kind of situation that seems much bigger than our capacity to handle. And yet in all of these, the Holy Spirit breathed upon us with a spirit of peace that you really didn't understand, but you knew that there was peace. Or what about a co-worker or fellow believer who's just been diagnosed with cancer? Though they face a difficult surgery and tough prospects for complete recovery, They are calmly at peace. Now, others can't understand this. How a person can be so calm when faced this deadly foe? And here, my friend, is the peace of Christ brought home through the comfort of the Holy Spirit. You also have an assurance of salvation. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. We sing that hymn many times. And I can think nothing of nothing that brings greater peace to my heart day by day than the assurance that Jesus is mine and I am his. That's why the Bible makes so much of this matter of assurance. You know, as a pastor, I've watched people agonize over this matter of assurance. And then I've seen also the glorious peace of Christ flood their, uh, their faces as they, uh, they come to full assurance. And you can face almost anything if you're assured that you indeed know the living God through Christ and that you can belong to him by virtue of being adopted into his family. So Jesus goes. But then also it says here that Jesus comes. In verse 28, ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. I will come again unto you. First, he comes to us in the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is divine paraclete, someone who comes alongside. The same nature and substance as our Lord. He's indeed another helper, but another of the same kind. But we also have the wonderful promises of Christ's return. You have a book full of promises. Jesus told the disciples that he was preparing a place for them in, in the Father's house and that one day he himself would return for them and to take them to their Father's house. And this is a blessed hope that keeps the saints going through thick and thin. They know that either Jesus would return for them in this life or resurrect them in the last day to meet him in the air. And that's the truth that Paul brings forth in 1 Thessalonians 4 concerning 
being caught up together with the Lord in the, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. Titus, he also uh, emphasized this to Titus in Titus 2, 11 through 14. He said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over, right? And knowing that Jesus will one day draw to a close this evil world by his glorious return brings peace. That brings us then to the response to peace. Peace really does you no good unless you utilize it. And this is our response to peace. First, recognize that it is our privilege. We must understand that peace is not something we can work up. I'm just going to work on being at peace. (laughs) It's not something you work up. You cannot coerce someone else to be at peace. You cannot run to the bookstore and find a book on how to have peace. You don't need to run to the bookstore. You already have a book. Peace is the privilege of the child of God. Uh, Jesus told the disciples very emphatically here, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Uh, They did not have to wonder if this was true. Because Christ is always true. Peace was their privilege, and it's yours and mine as well. Now we see this very clearly in Philippians chapter 4. Very familiar verses. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Yes, as a Christian, we have a great privilege of bringing all of our burdens, all of our requests to the Lord. And as Christians, we have the marvelous privilege of having the peace of God to keep us, to garrison our hearts and minds in use, union with Christ. Paul pictures the peace of God standing as a sentinel at the door of our hearts and minds, guarding against the would-be trespassers, driving away fear and turning out unbelief and resisting worry and fretting. That's our privilege. Do you know the God, the peace of God is your privilege in your relationship to Christ? But it's not only a a privilege, it's a responsibility. Peace is also a responsibility, for we see our Lord exhorting these disciples. Again, he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Peace is available. So walk in it. You have the responsibility to apply the peace of God to your life. It says in Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be thankful. Be ye thankful. We can simplify this by just pointing out that peace is present and available in Christ through all that he has accomplished in our behalf. We must apply this peace, enter into it daily. 
The peace of Christ is the privilege of every believer. That's the teaching. The peace of Christ must be practiced by every believer. That's the application of this teaching. You apply the peace of Christ in several ways. Notice, first of all, you believe and accept the promises of God. Secondly, you understand the doctrines associated with peace and stand in them. You know, doctrines like justification, so forth. You ask for this peace from God. Number four, you lay your needs before the Lord and you rest in the assurance of his promises. And number five, you look to Christ in all of his immutability and rest in his faithfulness toward you as his child. You can apply the peace of Christ to your life in this way. Again, I remind you of the angels that proclaimed the peace through Christ, the Old Testament prophets that foretold about the peace through Christ. Christ himself told us of peace through him. The question is, do you know the peace of Christ in reality? Listen, this peace is not outside of Christ, but it's in Christ, in your relationship, your union with him. It is by faith that we enter into a lasting, eternal relationship with the Prince of Peace who gave himself for us that we might have our peace. Real, genuine peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you.